Well, welcome to session number six in the Gospel Revolution Seminar. And today we're going to do something a little different. You know, in, in previous times, something called the catechism was very popular. It was basically a way of teaching through questions and answers. And very often, especially when I'm doing these large seminars myself, I'm the only teacher there. I have a little bit more time, so I take questions and answers, and it can be very, very meaningful. And so uh, Dean Morris, my associate to Tyna, uh, they have helped me to remind me what are some of the most common questions that pastors and leaders would ask me. And so we have summarized them. And of course, when I'm in those seminars, I have no preparation time. It's just given to me, and I answer very much right on the spot. And uh, today I had a, a few minutes. I was handed the list of questions maybe 10 minutes ago. And, I, and so uh, hopefully I'll give us good answers today as I do in those sessions. So I have Dean here standing over on the side. Come on over here, Dean. Already. And uh, so I, I don't know what order you have the questions in, but just... Uh, You've been there maybe in the sessions when we do this, yeah, and so just fire away. Sounds good. So we have a bunch of different questions. We'll start off with uh, a good one here, and it's, uh, it has to do with what you said in an earlier session, um, that we have to be careful how we read the Old Testament. And so with that being said, do you still believe in the Old Testament, and do you see value in it in relation to the New Covenant? Okay. Well, sometimes when we emphasize one particular point, you know, people hear something new and they, they, they interpret it in a way that it was never intended or spoken. And so we make it very clear that the old covenant has become obsolete. It has been completed by the new covenant. And so we live by the new covenant. And so then people jump to this conclusion, oh, maybe the, the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. It matters a lot. In fact, my personal testimony is that in our Bible school, I teach five courses, five courses. Each course is usually 18 hours of Jesus Christ revealed in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ in the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the books of Moses and Joshua and Psalms and Isaiah. And so we have a very clear instruction by Jesus Christ himself. You know, in Luke 24, Jesus gave the instructions, how to look at the Old Testament. And he said, the books of Moses and Psalms and all the prophets speak of me. And so the way we teach and the way I preach from the Old Testament is very much like the very early church fathers. You know, the early church fathers are those in the first few centuries, a couple of centuries after Christ, who had some of them been trained by the original 12 apostles. And so they really preached Christ because they didn't have the New Testament. So they couldn't turn to Romans or, or Corinthians like we do. Uh, but, but they turned to the Old Testament scriptures to reveal Jesus Christ. Now, what we do when we read the Old Testament scriptures, we filter them through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, for example, when we read about a man called Jabez, not a big character, but he has a few noteworthy verses of him uh, in the book of Chronicles. And, and when we read of him and how he prayed, oh God, expand my territory that you would bless me. Of course, we, we, we then filter those prayers through the new covenant. And so we say, well, today we don't pray, oh, that you would bless me, God. Instead, we pray, I say, thank you, Lord, that I have received every blessing through Jesus Christ. And when we look at Solomon's prayer, 
for example, oh God, that you would heal our land, that you would forgive our sins. We see that through the finished work of Jesus, that actually Jesus Christ put away the sins of the world. And we pray instead, oh God, help us to give this message to people of what has already been done. And when we study David, of course, you can make a teaching about David and Goliath and you can talk about various human problems like fear or bitterness or unforgiveness. This is the Goliath in your life. That's fine. But we have to also say David is a type of Jesus, the son of David. And so we say that when David defeated Goliath, it was a picture of how Jesus Christ defeated all principalities and powers and made a show of them openly. When we talk about Noah's ark, it is a picture of Jesus Christ who is our ark of salvation. And when we talk about the ark of the covenant, we're not just talking about a historic relic. We're talking about that that ark of the covenant is a picture of Jesus Christ. And we could go on and on. Obviously, I'm not going to give you all those uh, Five courses, which would be over 100 hours of teaching, but there's lots to draw from there. And this is the way the early church fathers preached. So, so we, we love the Old Testament. In fact, I love it more. I love it more because now it, it, it's become more meaningful. I'm not just reading so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so. It's become more meaningful. It's a treasure hunt of discovering Jesus Christ. And so Paul actually said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, uh, you know, many people, when they read the Old Testament, they have a veil over their face. They don't see it. But when you discover Christ, he said, then you see it. And so the Old Testament has become more precious. All right. Let's go to the next question here. That, that sure is beautiful. And the, you know, one of the things that I appreciate so much in the seminars is when you talk about how that the devil has been defeated. With that being said, how do you look at the scripture where Jesus said that only certain kinds of demonic powers come out only by prayer and fasting? And so what is the role in fasting in the new covenant? Well, you know, whenever somebody says that Jesus said this or that or the Bible says this or that, it's always good to go to that scripture verse and see, is that really what it says? And so this is something uh, that people have been talking about. So, of course, that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let's go to Matthew here. I just brought my Bible. And I always say, when people say this and this and they've heard, usually something they've heard said repeatedly, and so they just assume, since I've heard a hundred preachers say this, it must be verbatim from Jesus. But it's not necessarily so, even though it's attributed to Jesus. So, so let's look at that. So it's in a story of the boy we would call, and in the New American Standard it says he was a lunatic. He had epilepsy. It says in one place he was thrown in the fire and he was uh, thrown in the water. He was deaf-mute. And there was a demonic uh, power active in this. And so the father brought this boy to Jesus. And, well, first of all, to Jesus' disciples, excuse me. And it says in verse 16, Matthew 17, they could not cure him. Obviously, the father brought the boy to Jesus, uh, to the disciples, expecting that the disciples who had been involved in healing ministry would be able to bring healing to this boy. But maybe the circumstantial situation was too overwhelming for them as this boy is foaming at the mouth and rolling back and forth. So what does it say? How did Jesus respond then when when the boy comes to Jesus with the father, and they say, why couldn't your disciples do it? Jesus says, 
You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. So Jesus doesn't say here, well, the disciples couldn't do it because they hadn't fasted and prayed. He says it's because of their unbelief. But let's keep reading. And then Jesus heals the boy. And then he says in verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? I mean, here is the prime time for Jesus to say, because you hadn't fasted enough. Because this demon was so big that just speaking my name wasn't doing, couldn't do it. And here comes Jesus and he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will speak to the mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. And then it says in brackets, but this kind doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting. Now, first of all, I want to note, any Bible worth its salt, I have the New American Standard Bible, the same is true in the King James Bible, it will tell you in the, in the, in the margin that the earliest translations of the Bible that we have found, when King James was translated, they hadn't just yet found some of the earlier translations. This verse isn't even there. In Mark's rendition of this, it says, comes out by prayer. And so what is the topic? It doesn't say anywhere in, in these verses that are included here that weren't in the early manuscript or in Mark or in Luke, it doesn't say anywhere that this kind of demon doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting. It doesn't say that. That's something people have read into it. But I would say I question that reading into it because what's the topic here? Nowhere does Jesus indicate that the size of the demon is the topic. The topic is unbelief. So when it says this kind, this kind of what? You could say, well, this kind of demon, that's what people have said. It doesn't say that. This kind of I would say it fits better in the narrative. This kind of unbelief doesn't come out except by prayer and maybe fasting, or if that was there added, you can look at it in your own Bible. And so that would make more sense because otherwise Jesus is saying some demons are so big that they don't come out just by you speaking my name. I mean, if that's the case, I don't know, you better hide in your basement because you never know when you're going to meet that big demon. When is that big, big, big demon coming that just overpower you? And you better never eat because what if you just had a big breakfast and then that uh, demon comes? That demon just manifests then. You, you'd be in trouble. And furthermore, I would add that this story appears before Jesus Christ rises from the dead, and before he went to hell, to plunder hell, he went down to the kingdom of Hades to declare victory. So, so in that sense, this is before the cross. This is before Jesus' victory uh, over all principalities and powers and triumphing over them. So I would be hard-pressed to make a theology of this. I, I told the story uh, and, uh, uh, of a minister that I know, don't know well, but I know a little bit, who was in a service where uh, there was a demonic manifestation and uh, somebody was growling, a man was growling. It sounded like a demon, evil power inside of the man. And he said, come out. 
in the name of Jesus. And uh, the demon said, spoke. It seemed, sounded like the voice of the demon spoke. He says, I'm not coming out except by prayer and fasting. Sneaky little devil. He'd been reading some uh, preaching manuscripts. And so at first, this preacher, as he told the story, he got a little bit afraid and backed off. I said, well, ooh, I had a big breakfast. Eggs and, you know, bagels and who knows? I don't know what this was, big breakfast. It was just maybe French toast. I don't know. But then he was reminded, and I think it was a word of wisdom. And he says, well, somebody lives in me. He's Christ in me, and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And in his name, you're coming out. So I, I would say to you, considering all these things, when this happened, considering the implications of, of anybody who would suggest to say that we are just victims of any evil power unless we fasted and prayed, we'd be dead in 40 days because you'd kind of die after 40, 50 days of no, no food or water. And so I, I would say, no, this doesn't, it, 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 that's not what it's saying. I would help to say it's more this kind of unbelief. In other words, prayer and fasting just means to set yourself aside to, to, to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and so, yeah, the, the kind of faith that is involved here, it comes by focusing on Jesus Christ. And that could involve fasting, certainly. Uh, and, and it certainly involves prayer. So that's how I see all that. Wow. Look on that. All right. That's awesome. So this next question is uh, perhaps one of the ones, at least that I've heard the most around the world from mm -hmm. pastors and leaders, and that is that you, you strongly emphasize God's love. But I've always thought that God's love is just one of the many characteristics of God, such as wrath or anger or righteousness or holiness. So how do you, uh, how can you explain more on this uh, with the scriptures? Yeah. See, see, that's what many people say. They say, well, you know, God has so many attributes. And then they say, of course, God's love is on the top, kind of the top on the list. But there's God is righteous. God is holy. God is anger and all those things. And now, 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 we need to draw a distinction between God's nature and God's attributes. And if you study systematic theology, this will be done. And so we could say God's nature. What, what is God? God is love. God is light. God is life. Those are the three things you can say describe who God is, God's nature. Now, God's attributes, the characteristics of God, flow from who he is. So if God is love, his anger never contradicts his love. His holiness, his righteousness, whatever other attributes are, never contradict who God is. They are an expression of who he is. So yes, God can be very angry. He's very angry with sin and the damage that sin causes to people. He's angry with hypocrisy because how it deceives people. He was angry with the Pharisees and Sadducees who made all kinds of rules for people that they themselves couldn't even live up to. Jesus was angry at that. He was angry at those who used their religion to, to, to enrich themselves. And he took the whip and went into the temple and just kicked things over. Yes, but all those expressions of God's wrath are an ex come from his love. It's because he loved the people. He loved them. That's why he was angry with hypocrisy. That's why he was angry with sin. So, so, so the attributes never contradict his nature. Now, some people have tried to put these as polar opposites, saying that sometimes God is love, sometimes God is angry. That would make God schizophrenic. 
hardly a God worthy of our worship. And so uh, we need to, and of course we teach you, even in our, our gospel, Global Gospel Institute, I teach about this, the distinction between God's nature and God's characteristics and that the characteristics flow from who God is. And so we believe in all those things. Oh, that, that's, that's really good. And so kind of uh, sidetracking a little bit from that, but staying in the same way, is people talk about God's grace. And so the question is, is there an emphasis, in, uh, is there a danger in overemphasizing God's grace? Like, for example, if somebody or a person has heard the message of God's grace and love, yet they continue to live in sin and they feel uh, they're not ashamed of it and they just continue living that way. Maybe even like flaunt it and say, oh, I'm under God's right. grace, so I can do, exactly. you know, don't, don't talk to me. Right. Well, uh, once in a while we hear that. Sometimes people who have heard the message of God's grace, they behave in that manner. But I also want to quickly say some people who don't believe in God's grace at all, they're very legalistic. They also behave like that. I've seen both types. So I don't think that if you did a statistical survey, I heard somebody had done that. There's no indication that people who hear a message of God's grace behave any more badly than people who are totally into legalistic teaching. The difference might be that the legalistic person covers up more. You know, if they're going to do something bad, Maybe they put on a big hat and big sunglasses and pull up their collar and say, I hope the pastor doesn't see me. Well, maybe a person who has heard about God's grace might not be as hypocritical about it, which I suppose, if anything, is I don't want to measure what here, but uh, that's not so bad because if people are open about what they're doing, at least you can deal with it. And so what should we do? How should we deal with this? I mean, in the, in the leadership lesson that Jesus gave from Luke chapter 15, you have so much depth of revelation there. What should the father do with the son who had openly been rebellious, who kind of flaunted his rebellion by saying, I want my money now, and when I get it, I'm going as far from father's house as I can. I'm going to show everybody I don't want nothing to do with my father. Now, the instinct of religion says you need to punish that person. Punishment. That, that's all we know. That's what society has to offer is punishment. Jail, fines, punishment. But what, what the father does, he gives hugs and kisses. Now, I, I know that, that some people say, well, that won't work. Well, that's the only remedy that the Bible offers. There may be some people who take that love and they abuse it. In the story of the prodigal son, there was no guarantee. I mean, he could have, after he got the ring and the robe and the new shoes, he could have said, well, I'm leaving. I'm going back to that place I was. I'm going back to where I was. But there's no indication he did. But there was no guarantee. So let me hasten to say, there's no guarantee about you either or me either. I mean, maybe any one of us who have received God's grace, we could go a little crazy. It could happen. There but for the grace of God, any one of us goes. And so I, I must apply, we could apply many verses to this question, but I would go back to Romans 5, 17. Now, I know I mentioned that in one of the previous five sessions. I forget which one it was. That we reign in life, because reigning in life means you're not living in sin. You're not... It just flaunting, I can do whatever I want. And how do we reign? By the abundance of grace and by the gift of Christ's righteousness. And so, you know, some people may turn it, 
you know, turn it away. Some people may abuse it. That doesn't mean you should stop preaching it or practicing it. It, it, Because going the other way and trying to think that finger-wagging and beating people up and punishing that will for sure not make them righteous. And so it's a risk. Yeah, there are some people who might abuse God's grace. They don't become like Paul who says, I labor more abundantly than you all, yet not I, but the grace of God. Some may not do that, but that should be the response. That's why we sometimes talk about the grace response. How do I respond to this unmerited favor? And, and there is a responsibility to respond, and, 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 and that's part of the message. So I hope that gives people some food for thought. Absolutely. You know, one of the highlights of the Gospel Revolution Seminar is always when you talk about casting out the other woman and casting out Hagar. And when you mentioned uh, casting out Hagar, you mentioned out casting religion and the law. And you mentioned certain topics in there. You mentioned preaching, prayer, finances. What, in, 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 in the face of all that, what about tithing? Well, you know, that was in the previous session, session five. And, and I will admit to you, as I was teaching, I tried to keep it to about 45, 47 minutes each session. And so when I got to that part where I go through different areas, the praise and worship and the prayer, I looked at my watch and said, I don't really have time to get into it. So I do appreciate that question. And so I mentioned very quickly, you know, cast out Hagar, the religious way of taking offerings, because, you know, we, we don't give by the law, we give by grace. But there was a lot more that I, uh, I could say about that, so I appreciate that question coming back now. And, and so people, and of course for pastors who are concerned about the church budget, this is a, this is a matter of survival. Anything you say about tithing, pastors, years, you know, they prick up and they say, well, what, what's he saying now? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is about nothing that is as controversial or as sensitive as talking about that. So I just want to ask you to relax. If you're a pastor and leader watching this, just, just relax. It's going to be all right. But, but hear me out on this. Hear me out on this. In, in the book of Malachi, uh, it says very clearly and uh, without going there, you know, Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Covenant, uh, about 400 years before Christ. And he talks about bringing in the tithe and offerings into the storehouse. And they had a number of, of tithes. And then he gives the people this motivation. He says, if you bring in the tithe and the offering, tithe being 10% of your, of your whatever comes your way, income, inheritances, whatever, if you do that, then the Lord says, I will open heaven for you. <laughs> Meaning it, it's just full access to God. Number two, he says, he says, God will rebuke the devourer. And we interpret that to mean the devil and all evil that destroys our life. And then number three, he says, I'll, you know, the curse will be broken. So if we look at those three very carefully, now from the perspective of the new covenant, the gospel covenant, we do have a problem. It's a problem, folks, because Jesus already broke the curse. I mean, that's Galatians chapter 3, that Christ hanging on a tree became a curse for us so that we might inherit and partake of the blessing of Abraham who was rich in everything according to the book of Genesis. So the curse is broken. Jesus broke it. And then what about rebuking the deliverer, the, the devourer? not the deliverer, the devourer. We, we quoted, I believe, we got to that, Colossians 2, that Jesus triumphed over principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly. I mean, that's a pretty good rebuke, and the devil is under our feet. 
And thirdly, to open heaven. Hebrews tells us that Jesus passed through the heavens and made a new and living way, meaning the old and dead way is not the one we should even try to travel on, which is the way of religion, but he made a new and living way. And so if you are now giving your money in order to rebuke the devil and to open heaven and break the curse, maybe you give $100 to break the curse, $100 to open heaven, and $100 to to rebuke the devil. Well, you can put your $300 back in your pocket because it's too little and it's too late. Because Jesus already did that. Jesus has accomplished it. So some might say, well, I'm not going to give any money then. That's good. I'm glad you told me. Well, so why is it in the New Testament they gave even more money than the Old Testament? You say, this doesn't make sense at all. Why don't you take away that threat of fear when that preacher is no longer be able to say, you give now or you're gonna, God's going to take it out of your pocket. And the preacher says, and you know, some preachers in some countries are saying this, If you don't give to God now, when this anointing is here for finances, your your car is going to break down, your refrigerator is going to break down, and people, yeah, yeah, I'm going to give. Where where can I sign? Where can I sign up? You see, once that fear is removed, what happens then? Well, on the day of Pentecost was happened, they, they gave everything they had. And I'm not saying for you to do that. I'm just saying that they gave everything they had. So you see, We practice tithing. I practice tithing. My wife and I, we practice tithing. We do more than tithing, in fact. Because my thinking is, once I've discovered God's grace and the gospel covenant, I'm not going to do less than what I did under previous legalistic thinking. I'm going to do more. I'm going to do more. I'm going to abound even more. But I don't do it under the pattern of Moses. I do it under the pattern of Abraham. Remember the first time in the scripture when tithing is directly mentioned, it is in reference to Abraham. Abraham is our new covenant example. Never Moses, always Abraham. Why did Abraham tithe? Because the victory had already been won. God had given this great victory. So he brought tithe. This is our example. We practice Abrahamic tithe. We, 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 we tithe and do more because the victory has been won, because heaven has opened, because the devil has been defeated, because the curse is broken. So how could we do less? We want to do more. So, uh, so it motivates me because now I'm not giving tithes and offerings under the gun, so to speak, with a gun to my head. Do this or you're going to be in trouble. I'm doing this freely without any constraint. I want to be a part of this great covenant of financial increase in wisdom from God. And and so it's a joy. It's a privilege to tithe. I would never, never, I, I want to do more than that tithes and offerings. So pastors, I know this made you nervous, but I said, you can relax. Once you people get a hold of this and you teach it and you can dig much deeper into what I said, I tell you, I don't think money giving is going to go down. It's going to go up instead. Well, I hope that made everybody peaceful. I think so. (laughs) Okay. You know, one thing that many people bring up in the seminar is the the issue of God's judgment. So the question is, if God doesn't judge the people, Uh, How do you look at the story in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira? Well, this is something that comes up quite often, and so it's always good to go to the story. I did that before. That's in Acts chapter 5. 
You know, uh, I, I've heard preachers say this. We're going back to the book of Acts. We're going to have Ananias and Sapphira services. Well, I don't know how many people will come to church if you announced be having an Ananias and Sapphira service. People might say, I'm going to stay home that service. I think I'm not going to come. And so I think sometimes we read more into the story of Ananias and Sapphira than is there. And so I'm just right now open up here, and I wasn't at all kind of prepping on this question or anything, so I'm just going to give it as it comes. It says... There were two people. There was a man named Ananias, this first one, with his wife Sapphira. That's a very strange expression. No Christians, what we would call Christians, no believers were referred that way. There was another Ananias later on. He's called a disciples. And, and they're called those who believe. There was a believer. There was a disciple. But here it just says there was a man and his wife. So that causes me to think for a moment. What's going on here? People are bringing everything they have in that moment. That's the only time it happened, so we don't need to think it needs to happen everywhere. It didn't happen in Antioch. It didn't happen in Ephesus, but it happened here. They bring everything they own and laid it at the apostles' feet. They did it willingly. They did it glad, and we're sure God blessed them. So then this other group is here, this other this couple comes and they do it, but they're lying. They're not giving it all. They're just pretending they gave it all. So they're lying to the Holy Spirit. And then when, when they are exposed with that lie, they drop dead. Well, what killed them? It doesn't say anywhere that God killed them, but I suppose it doesn't say that God didn't kill them. It, says, it doesn't say God killed them either. It says that they just, uh, maybe they had a heart attack. When they were exposed, they were so shocked that maybe they had a heart attack. I don't know. But I'm not going to make a doctrine out of what is not clearly spoken. I'm not going to make a huge thing about what the Bible doesn't say. But then it says after this, and here, here we have another clue. It says right after this, great fear or awe came on the whole church and all those who heard these things. And many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. They were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But then that was verse 12. But then verse 13 says, none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. So I see three people groups involved here. I see, first of all, the believers. The believers. And they were... What, what do you say about the believers? God was doing wonders, and they were all in one accord in Solomon's portico, all the believers. Then you had the people, which were the general populace, and they held the believers in great esteem. But then you have this group called none of the rest. The rest of who? Well, the only way I can interpret that is the rest of the likes of Ananias and Sapphira. So there was a, they were a part of another group. The rest, and I think it's pretty clear what that group was. They were people infiltrating this new church that had just been born, this baby church, infiltrating with legalistic, religious, self-effort, performance teaching, which later on happened in Galatia. And so as an act of protection, God allowed them to die. It could happen. Does it say that God wouldn't protect people? 
you know, I, I had a situation many years ago where we had a campaign and we were attacked. I'm talking about with uh, homemade hand grenades. People were attacking us and uh, it was very sensitive. I've had one person killed in the service. They were trying to kill me, but they missed me. I was a very one of the worst things I've ever had to do when I, when I went to visit that family. It, it, it just still moves my heart just to think about it. Uh, and, and so, but in this, this place I'm talking about, there was a tremendous attack. And then later on, about a week after that, some of the attackers inexplicably drowned. And in fact, I only found out about it because they sent me the headline from the newspaper in that city where, the, where they said that those who attacked the Christian campaign had drowned. Now, I don't go around and say that God drowned them. I don't know why they drowned. I, I don't know. I just know they drowned. I don't ha- I, I'm not, not going to make an evaluation. I didn't w- want for them to drown. I wanted them to receive Christ. Could it be? I don't know. I have no basis for this, but could it be that they were planning attacks on believers and God who knows everything protected the believers? I don't know. But I wouldn't take this story where it doesn't say specifically what we have read into the story and and make this story contradict the whole gospel that Jesus took the sins of the world. He put them away. He's the Lamb of God. So, so there's a lot of things we could say about this and there are other similar stories, but you know, we only have 45 minutes. So that gave people a little taste. All right, let's see what else you got, Dean. So spiritual warfare is always a hot topic and people have different ideas of different prayers, different things they need to do for spiritual warfare. To you, what is spiritual warfare under the new covenant? Well, I kind of already alluded to it. We've talked a little bit about it in, in several of the questions here today. But um, fighting the good fight of faith. And what is that fight? Well, I, in, in, less, in session four, I dealt with Ephesians chapter six and how we are fighting against deceptions. So spiritual warfare is fighting not against the devil. He's already defeated, but deceptions that come from evil. Lies, you are not loved. You're, you know what Jesus did is not enough a kind of a Jesus plus theology. Oh, Jesus is nice, but you know, you need more than that. And so th- this one place in the, in the King James, I don't know, I have the New American, which I, I like because people say this is so following the original language of the Greek. But in the King James, it says in Hebrews 4.12, therefore let us strive to enter the rest. Here it says, let us be diligent to enter the rest. So the one area where we wrestle or where we strive, and we could call that spiritual warfare, is to stay in the rest, leaning on what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because that can be a battle. Sometimes our mind is flooded with things. Flooded with things. And and all kinds of contradictory voices and all kinds of negative reports. (laughs) You know, I've made, I don't know, usually you are at the campaign site when I'm holding a campaign, so you're not with me in the car always when we go from the place we're staying to the, to the sports arena, wherever we're going to be on the field. But very often, if you're with me, I start singing to myself. Usually they have some uh, strange songs on, even praise, some praise and worship songs. They don't do nothing for me. So I said, turn that off. And I start singing myself. And, and one of the songs I find myself singing, especially if we're in turmoil and there's the police and there's government and there's argument, I start singing, learning to lean, 
learning to lean. I'm learning to lean. I wish I could sing. <laughs> On Jesus. You know, that's spiritual warfare I'm doing right there. I'm saying I got to get the, the, these, these contradictory thoughts that are bombarding my head. I'm, I'm centering in. I'm focusing. I, I want to rest in what Jesus has done because the task that I had before me is entirely dependent on what Jesus has done. And so I, even by singing that, I try to crowd out all those voices that would, that would stir me and make me all stressed and in the wrong direction. Um, yeah, I, that's, that's a little spiritual warfare right there. That's really good. Okay, let's, not, uh, let's, sort, let's, let's do some more here now because we're running out of time. Absolutely. You know? So we have two more questions. Oh, only two more. Oh, good, good, good. More. Yep. And so uh, the one question is, uh, with all that's being said in the Gospel Revolution Seminar, are the Ten Commandments for us today? Well, you know, this is another uh, hot potato that you could just drop and not address. But, of course, it says in 2 Corinthians 3 that, and I, 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 I think in the very first uh, of these sessions, number one, uh, I was teaching from 2 Corinthians 3. It says that uh, uh, the enmity, the enmity, the Ten Commandments, that which was written on, uh, on stone. So we're not talking about all the ordinances of how to wash the utensils. We're talking about that which was written on stone. It's called our enmity. Not because the Ten Commandments are not holy and just. No, they are a beautiful, holy and just and perfect standard. They're holy and just and perfect. But, but they still are an enemy to us because none of us can live up to it, especially if we use Jesus' criteria. And, and Jesus says, if you, if, you, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. If you gossip, you're a murderer. If you look at a woman with lust, you committed adultery. And he says, if your hand offends, you cut it off. And if your eye offends, you pluck it out. And if your foot offends, you cut that off too. We wouldn't have any body parts left. And so it's a strict standard. And so it's not that it isn't good. People say to me, now that you teach so much about God's grace, do you still believe in living morally and pure and living a holy life? Of course the more I know of God's grace, the more I think it's important to live holy and live morally pure. This grace doesn't lower your standard. It raises your standard. Because unlike the Pharisees, you can't even find loopholes. You can't even find little caveats and explanations why you should exclude certain people or, or, or certain kind of bad behaviors. You say, no, I'm doing this not because I have rules that tell me to do it, but I'm doing it because of Jesus Christ. So in that sense, yes, the Ten Commandments are there. But Paul also says, and if you want to study this in Romans 7, he says the law, the commandments are holy, just, and pure. But the problem is they can't make me holy. They can't make me pure. They don't have power. They're like a, a mirror. You can look at a mirror and you see the dirt on your face, but the mirror cannot clean your face. It takes soap and water to do that. And so the law may show you that if you do this wrong and you do that wrong, but it doesn't make you holy. It doesn't change you. But Jesus Christ, he is also perfect, just, and pure. 
and he lives in you. He helps you. And so when we've had these discussions from time to time, it has come up. I think the battle is kind of over, especially in the United States. Uh, this was a situation not so much in Canada and in Europe, the rest of the world. There was a battle. I know it was in Alabama and Maybe it was in West Virginia. I don't know. Maybe it was in Ohio where you're from. I don't know. But uh, there was this battle in courthouses and in schools that we must have the command, Ten Commandments posted in the courthouse. We must have the Ten Commandments posted. When people come to high school, they must see the Ten Commandments. And the idea was good and noble, I think. I don't think people wanted anything bad with that. Uh, they thought that if you if you post those Ten Commandments, that'll teach everybody how to live. That'll teach them how to live. But, but Paul says the commandments aroused in me a desire to sin. So when you hear, you shall not, something in you want to do that very thing. I mean, it would be, I use a kind of a simple illustration. If you're walking down the street and there's homes on every side, and if you walk by one, one house and they have a big sign says, no trespassing, don't look in this direction. Imagine that. Everything in you wants you look in that direction. Then, Even if you would normally just walk by that house, you wouldn't even glance. You're caught up in your own uh, thoughts. But if it said, don't even look, you say, I want to look. I want to sneak a peek. I want to look a little bit because... The law has that causes that. I remember, you know, my mother, when we had company coming to the house, she would say, well, they're going to sit in the living room. And so Peter, she would say, now, Peter, you can't go be in the living room. I just cleaned it up. I just cleaned it up. You can't go there. But I said, normally I can play a little bit. No, 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 I cleaned it up. And you see, just my mother saying that, something in me wanted to just step over into the living room just for a second, see if I could get away with it. And so she turned around and she was going somewhere place and I would just kind of, it, it gave me a little bit of a kick. Can you imagine that? Well, you, you, I was probably four years or five years old when this happened, but you know, this is human nature. You tell people don't do it. They want to do the very thing you're told not to do. And, and, and so I, I was saying, and some people got upset. I said, you know, instead of battling for having the Ten Commandments in the courthouse or in the high school, why don't we, Try to say, could we put John 3.16 up in the courthouse? Could we put John 3.16 in the high school? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I said, those are saving words. Those are not words that arouse in you a desire to sin. Uh, those are words of love. So sometimes I think we, we, we're fighting for the wrong thing. We, we, we're making the battle about the wrong thing. And I want to bring people, that's why I said we had gospel revolution. We bring them back to fight for the gospel. Fight for John 3, 16. And 17, that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through be saved by him. That's worth fighting for. Okay, we've got time for, for another question. We've got one last question. That is that, you know, one of the main concerns today is racism. And uh, we know that the church has been engaged in that throughout its history. So what does the message of God's grace uh, speak to that? How does it relate to what's uh, the main topic today? Well, you know, uh, let me first say that racism is a global issue. And uh, in the uh, United States context, in Canada, it is mostly thought of as uh, people of African descent to people of European descent, yeah. black and white. That's how it's thought. But racism is all over the world. It's in different forms. It's in, 
Asia, it's in Europe, it's in Africa, it's, it's everywhere because uh, we know this. You know, I've spent my, my life traveling the world and in some country they call it tribalism. And so uh, one tribe is prejudicial towards another tribe. And in one country, I'm not going to say it because the people feel bad, but not that many years ago. I was there just after uh, over a thousand people had died, just different tribes fighting it out, killing one another with machetes. You know that terrible Rwanda, uh, million people, some say, maybe 800,000 or a million people died, killed with machetes. And, and there, was, there was all kinds of factors, including religion, but there was two different tribes. So, so racism is everywhere. So in the Bible, of course, the Bible doesn't talk about Chinese versus Latinos or Latinos versus uh, Europeans and Af Africans versus uh, whatever uh, group of people. So we, we got to go at the example the Bible has. What, what strengthens me there is Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just open up to that where it, 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 there it speaks about Jews versus Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. There you have the breakdown. Two different groups. And the Jewish people felt they were special and maybe the Gentiles felt that well, we, 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 they looked down on us and there was all this fighting. And so then Paul says here that now those who are of the Jewish descent, those who are Jewish people, who have been very near to the scriptures and all that, they've been near. And others have been far away, meaning the Gentiles and non-Jewish people. He says, he says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, you are near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. He made both groups into one, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He abolished in his flesh the law of commandments. That way back to the Ten Commandments. He abolished those in his flesh. And he reconciled both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. And, and so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and, and of the household of God. And so that is the example we have in Scripture. And I choose to, to take that example because the Bible also says that it means that there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither male nor female or servant, or master, we are all one in Jesus Christ. And so today when we are facing racism is different form, and, and we face it in, in Asia, we face it in Africa, we face it in Canada, United States, I take Ephesians 2 and I say this is rooted. If, if you go to the Bible, because it's very deeply rooted. You can change laws, but you don't change human hearts. But when the human heart discovers Jesus Christ tore down every wall and no one can consider himself superior to the other. That is an antichrist thought, to think that my group, my skin color, my tribe is superior. That is an antichrist thought because it's against what Jesus accomplished. And you see, once that sinks in, then you will find that not just on the surface, but even the deep-rooted racism against other people, it evaporates. And the stronger Jesus becomes to you, the more and more it's gone. Well, our time is up, Dean. You, you brought a stopwatch here, so I'm glad for that. Let me pray with everybody right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the revelation of the gospel. And I thank you that you give us a wide open door 
to share the gospel. Let the gospel have free course in Jesus' name. Amen.